Welcome to the Covered Bridges of New Hampshire podcast, where we discuss all things related to covered bridges in the Granite State. Here's your host, Kim Chandler. Hello, Covered Bridge people, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking with Francis Faulkner Jr. of Swansea about his involvement in fundraising efforts to rebuild the Slate Bridge after it was destroyed by arson in 1993. Francis shares the many layers of funding through the process of town meeting and the community connection to covered bridges in Swansea. Here we go. Located in the southwest corner of New Hampshire, the town of Swansea is home to four historic covered bridges. The Thompson Bridge, built in 1832, the Crescent Bridge, built in 1859, the Slate Bridge, built in 1862, and the Carlton Bridge, built in 1869. By the early 1990s, these covered bridges all seemed to reach their expiration date about the same time. As the town of Swansea allocated funds through town warrants to repair their beloved bridges, a tragedy reduced one of them to ashes. In this episode, we're talking with longtime Swansea resident and former town selectman Francis Faulkner Jr. about the town's efforts to restore the three remaining covered bridges and replace the fourth. Francis has a record of dedicated service to the town of Swansea, including 11 years as a selectman, 10 years as a grounds and facilities maintenance supervisor, 23 years as a firefighter, and a past member of the zoning board. Francis worked for over 30 years at Kingsbury Corporation in various positions, from machinist to engineering to sales. Francis is currently a trustee of the First Congregational Church of Swansea. Welcome to the podcast, Francis. Thank you. Before we get started, a lot of my questions are around town warrant articles and town meeting, and I'm wondering if you can explain to our non-New Englanders what a town meeting is? A town meeting is where voters, registered voters of the town, get together to decide the affairs of the town. So the selectmen put together a warrant that, you know, outlines what needs to be done in the next year, you know, including police departments, fire departments, you know, maintaining streets and roads and so and all of that comes up for discussion and people can either add money to it take money away from it so it's basically the townspeople are deciding their own faith so Mm -hmm. to speak and they usually do that on a saturday in the town hall now it's it has to be, I think it's the second Tuesday of March. Okay. Um, that's always the town meeting. And, you know, everybody, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I kind of miss it. It's just a different type of government. And I'm actually kind of yes. surprised that it still, it still exists. But I think in mm-hmm. this part of New Hampshire, it's never going away. But they used to be, you know, this was years ago. They used to be a, an article or a warrant question that would raise $50 to do um, pine blister rust control. And that $50 article, people would talk about it for half an hour because $50 was something they could understand. (laughs) Right. Right. 
And I'm sorry you had to listen to old cassette tapes of town meetings. It must have been horrible. <laughs> well, it's the who we used to have as a moderator in town um, is your typical New Englander. I mean, he had the New England accent, and he added something to town meeting that you don't get today, you know, with the SB2 ballot thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there there was a sense of humor. I mean, it was almost like a variety show going to town (laughs) meeting. (laughs) Let's set the stage for the state of Swansea's four covered bridges in the early 1990s. In 1988, the Carlton Bridge was closed due to safety concerns. And then two years later, the Thompson Bridge was also closed. And at town meeting in 1991, voters rejected a $500,000 Warren article to fix the Thompson Bridge. Why was that? Why did the voters say no to that? At the 1991 town meeting, there was an article proposed to raise $500,000 to repair the Thompson Bridge. There were several estimates that were done by various engineering firms, and these estimates ranged from two hundred and fifty to $500,000. The state of New Hampshire DOT was contacted, but they stated that they would not be involved in any of the repairs to the Thompson Bridge as they didn't have that 80-20 bridge program in place at that time. Okay. And the Swansea Town moderator, who was also uh, a representative for the state at the time, spoke with the DOT commissioner, and the commissioner basically told him that the state had no money to do any repairs on any bridges and that the New Hampshire gas tax would need to be increased so as to be able to provide them with money to be able to do any kind of repairs. After considerable debate on Article 7 as to best how to take on the repairs needed for the Thompson Bridge, concerns included the ability for the emergency vehicles to use the bridge, Mm -hmm. uh, and they were kind of told that even with the best repairs that could take place, it was only going to get a six-ton weight limit. Okay. And typical fire trucks weigh in the neighborhood of 20 ton. Mm-hmm. So other individuals also expressed, time, expressed the amount of time required for emergency vehicles to drive around to the other bridge, mm-hmm. which amounted to about three minutes. And then there were several individuals that, suggested that the repairs be put off for one or two years as they felt the money could be spent better elsewhere. Uh, Had the bond issue passed, it would have added 40 cents per $1,000 value. Mm -hmm. The following year, voters changed their mind and they voted yes. So what was the, the difference? What shifted that, do you think? In 1992... You know, basically it was Article 5 that was being proposed. And I spoke during the meeting saying that the town would take out a construction loan. And then once the repairs were complete, they would know exactly how much money was needed. And at that time, they would go and take out a 10-year bond. 
there was a bridge committee in place that consisted of eight members, and they did a look at all of the bridges in town and decided what needed to be done to them. But it was also stated that the Thompson Bridge was left by our forefathers, and it should be repaired in their in their honor to respect them. Hmm. Uh, the bridge has social value as well as economic value and historic value to the town. Um, the engineers that was present at the meeting stated that the repairs being done would be good for fifty to sixty years, and the tax impact at for this article would only be 36 cents per thousand because the you know interest rates were a lot lower than they were the previous year. Mm-hmm. So the article did pass 380 yes votes to 80 no votes. I know work started the following year on the Thompson Bridge and shortly before the bridge reopened, um, the Slate Bridge was destroyed. Can you tell us about the events of March 8th, 1993? That was actually the day before the next town meeting in 1993. Mm. And during that meeting, a petition was started to make the state of New Hampshire aware that something needed to be done to replace the Slate Bridge and to find those responsible for destroying the bridge. So there was kind of an informal committee that was started, uh, but it wasn't the official committee. What was the community response to the loss of the slate bridge to arson? There were a lot of heartbroken people that, you know, had seen that bridge there for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, It also prevented individuals in Westport from easy access there's a store at the end of the road and they would have to drive all the way around to get to that store. Mm-hmm. Senator Blaisdell, who was state Senate president at the time, mm-hmm. he put a tremendous amount of pressure on the DOT. And you had to be at some of those meetings to to hear him, what he said to the DOT people is basically, if you can't do your job, I'll find somebody that can. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And wh- where was he from? Was he, is he, he, was he, he from the area? Yes. He uh, was from Keene. Okay. He, there used to be a sporting goods store on uh, Roxbury street that he had. Okay. So he had a personal interest in ensuring yes, that that coverage came back. Yeah. Yeah, and and I know there was discussion of installing a concrete and steel bridge and and moving forward, and I know there was a lot of resistance to that. Yes, uh, they did put a Bailey Bridge in place. You know, after Senator Blaisdell kind of told the DOT where they were supposed to go, and that remained there until the actual construction started on the Slate Bridge. But the state was interested in doing a steel and concrete bridge, but the town didn't want to buy into that. Right. Do, you know, based on what you said earlier, that the state didn't have funding 
for bridges. Do you think that's why that was their response was to just with a concrete and steel bridge? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know there were a lot of newspaper articles and press about there was an arrest for the arson and that um, a young man stood trial and was found not, not guilty. What was the community response to that? They weren't happy, but um, arson is one of those things that is very, very difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. I mean, you almost got to be standing there and seeing the individual light the match, you know, in order to get a conviction. And I have a photo that, the Swansea Historical Society shared with me of the Slate Bridge totally engulfed in flames. Mm-hmm. And the story from that was the neighbor looked out, saw the front end of the bridge on fire, called the fire department and came back and the whole bridge was engulfed. It, it yes. seems like it just went so fast. Um, it's a really hard photo to see. Mm-hmm. I, I show it in my, in my programs that it, makes me feel physically ill every time I look at it. And when the bridge was, you know, had burnt and was sitting in the river, um, other individuals that really didn't live in town but owned property in town became involved. And one of those individuals was uh, Dr. Timothy Johnson from ABC News. Oh, right. And, And he did a interview at the bridge, you know, encouraging it to be replaced. A new covered bridge was finally pr- proposed by the New Hampshire DOT for $1.4 million with 80% of the funds coming from the state bridge aid program. And Swansea had to come up with 20%, which was about $280,000. And again, voters said no to mm-hmm. the Warren article. Can you talk about that? The article that was proposed uh, included $450,000. And the state had available in the 80-20 program $10 million, but it was on a first-come, first-served basis. So when they, you know, when that article came up at town meeting, there was a lot of discussion about it. But they, the town submitted three other bridges at the same time. So the voters were confused as to, you know, which bridge was going to, make the list. So that's more or less why they turned it down. And, and it, I mean, it got a majority vote. It was 339 yes to 227 no. But in order to meet the two thirds majority, it needed to have 373 yes. Okay. Bond issues are very, very difficult to pass, especially in Swansea. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, and and I I guess I go back to, you know, Swansea is is the only no, there is one other community in the state that has four covered bridges. Cornish is the other one. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive to have four h- historic bridges and I I would guess that the votes were not people who were rejecting the idea of a covered bridge. They're just looking out for what their tax bill is. Mhm. And it's it's hard to have both, I would imagine, yes. in, in such in such a small town. So after the those two Warren articles failed in 1995, you became the chair of the Slate Covered Bridge Committee. Can you tell us about that and how that started? It started because 
where I grew up was within about a hundred yards of the bridge. So, I mean, I had spent my whole childhood looking at that bridge Mm -hmm. and really, really wanted to get it put back there. What was that committee like? How how many people were on the committee? Did people volunteer? There were people that volunteered. I think that the committee itself consisted of eight to 10 people um, of different varying backgrounds. And we just all worked together to try to come up with the necessary funds to get the job done. And I've done fundraising. It's, it's hard work. It it's, is. Um, it feels like a lot of nickel and diming people for a, a big amount. And, and I know that your, your committee had a slate covered bridge um, bicycle tour. You had a 5k road race. You had raffles and cocktail socials, chili cook-off, sold homemade pies, sold t-shirts, had a variety show, you sold mums, you had yard sales. I mean, every, every possible fundraiser I've ever heard of you, you did. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of work for eight, eight to 10 it people. Is. And, uh, and it sounds like at the end of the day, at the, at the end of two years, you would only raise $16,000. How, how was that? How did that feel to you? It was kind of disheartening, but it, kind of, you know, made the committee say, we've got to look at a, you know, another way of getting funds. Mm -hmm. And that's when we approached the Kingsbury Fund and the Putnam Foundation uh, to see if they would contribute. And they both did, you know, substantial amount of money. And Yankee Magazine also became more involved with that subscription program where for every subscription the committee sold, they would add $10 to our fundraiser. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did all their advertising. You know, they promoted it in their magazine. They had us go down to the Eastern States Fair and hold a booth down there and, Mm. you know, do magazine subscription sales there. So they put a lot of time and effort into it. How did they become involved? I know that Yankees pretty local. There was a, a lady that worked for them. Her name was Christine Salem. Uh, and she approached me one day about, you know, seeing if we would be interested in, you know, working with Yankee Magazine to try to help raise funds for the bridge. That's amazing. That's, and I imagine the reach from Yankee. I mean, they're a local magazine, but they have national reach. Yes. And so do you feel like that that really pushed the fundraising over the it top? It did, because it gave it, you know, more meaning, you know, to have two prominent companies in town plus, you know, a nationwide company promoting, you know, putting this bridge back. Mm-hmm. And so when the funding was finally in, in place, I know that construction on the bridge began in 2000. And one other question I have is, it sounds like the fundraising may have been pushed over the edge in 1997, 1998, that there was a two-year delay between when the bridge started to be built. Do you know why that delay happened? Primarily, it was due to, um, we had to wait for another town meeting to you know make sure we had the funds in place, and the town was going to take 
because the committee didn't reach the entire goal. Uh, so the town was going to have to put money in from the capital reserve funds that, you know, were in place at the time to, you know, to, to bring the total up to what we needed. Mm-hmm. And once that was done and the state accepted that we had the funds, then the bridge could go ahead and be designed and a contractor hired. Okay. Were were you part of that that vetting process to hire Hoyle Tanner to work on the bridge or was that through the state? I don't believe I was because I was not a selectman at the time. Okay. Um, I had left office in 96 to focus on the fundraising effort. So I know that construction began in 2000 and the bridge opened in 2001. 2001, 2001. And what was that like for you to see that the slate bridge back over the river? Very, very moving. Very moving. You know, because I went down almost every day when they were building the trusses, you know, just to watch how they did it. Mm -hmm. And then the day that um, they started setting the trusses, you know, you're talking about pieces of wood that are 143 feet long and, you know, 15 feet tall. And they had a huge crane down there that day. And they had one truss over the river, you know, and the contractors wanted it moved like six more inches. And the crane operator says, I am maxed out. You've got what you got. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you went down every day to watch the bridge. Wow. Do do you still live near the Slate Bridge? I do. I'm probably two and a half miles away. Okay. How different is it from the bridge that you you grew up next to? It's a lot bigger, um, and it'll carry more weight than the original bridge. A lot of the covered bridges today have... um, solid floors, you know, that go from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. And the slate bridge used to have uh, three plank runners on either side. So when you drove into the bridge, you had to, you know, keep your wheels on those runners. And and they did that because it was less expensive to repair. In other words, they could take up, you know, six feet of boards as opposed to reflooring the whole bridge. Okay. Is that an area that you could swim in and fish and things like that? Or is the water not deep enough there? Yeah, you could. I mean, today you could, I wouldn't, you know, when I was growing up, the river was the river water was not in the condition that it's in today. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have been something you wanted to swim in. Mm -hmm. Because there were a lot of woolen mills upstream Mm -hmm. that, you know, put a lot of chemicals into the water. Right. Was it, was the bridge something that you, I mean, did you play in the bridge when you were little? Did you climb around? Like what was the bridge like? What, what did it mean to you? I didn't, but I know, you know, I had friends that did that were, you know, kind of like monkeys all over the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know, and that kind of leads me to my question of, you know, how, how covered bridges how important they are to to small communities. And it's not just, like you said, 
getting from here to there or not having to go around or being able to access places when you're traveling. But it also means something to community members to walk out of their house and look over and see that 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 covered bridge or or yes. have it as a as a touchstone to your childhood. Can you can you talk about that, about what the covered bridges mean to the Swansea community and to you? I mean, not just the slate bridge, but all the covered bridges in town have a meaning to, you know, a lot of the townspeople. There are some townspeople that would just as soon see, you know, a conventional bridge as opposed to a covered bridge. But Swansea is noted for its covered bridges. In fact, the town seal um, has a covered bridge as part of it. Mm -hmm. It's a testament to people like you who not only had leadership positions in the town, but also left those leadership positions to take on probably next to a full-time volunteer job trying to raise money um, to keep these covered bridges. And I'm grateful for your efforts and the efforts of your committee to ensure that the covered bridges stay. Thank you. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything that you'd like to add? I guess as a closing thought that the original bridge stood for 131 years. The bridge that is there today has been there for 22 years, which is far short of the original bridge. But I think with the grace of God and good maintenance that it will easily carry individuals for well into the future. I agree. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're welcome. Covered Bridges of New Hampshire is created by me and recorded in Hancock, New Hampshire. The song Old New Hampshire was arranged and performed by Josh Black. The introduction is courtesy of Greg Kretschmar. This podcast is a companion to my book, Covered Bridges of New Hampshire. You can find out more about the book, the podcast, blog posts, upcoming events, and an interactive covered bridge map at coveredbridgesnh.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Covered Bridges of New Hampshire. Please rate, review, and subscribe to or follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Chandler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.